name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. So we're going to um, go ahead and get started. Sure, yeah. I write under the name J.D. Morrison. I am called Jennifer. That's my given name. And I was a computer programmer. Here again, I helped save the world. You guys can thank me later. <laughs> um, but in 2003, I got a call at my desk one day. My uh, 23-year-old son, Richie, had had a minor car accident. He had driven the car home. He was shook up emotionally, you know, just anyway, uh, long story short, the very next day I got another phone call at my desk and it was my husband saying that Richie hadn't shown up to work. His work had called. He had gone down to try to wake him up. He was about to be a uh, second semester senior at DeVry University and uh, never didn't show up for work. So they knew something was wrong and Larry found him down and um, he, he was pretty much dead, to be honest with you. I kind of watched him take his last gas, but we managed to, I was a, a nurse before I was a computer programmer. I was an LPN briefly and started CPR, got him on a respirator, laid there. He laid there from Friday night to Sunday night. And then because of swelling, it, it went down his brain stem, stopped his heart. And I kept telling them at the hospital, I think he's hurt. He was in a car wreck. And he had taken some Tylenol for pain as he was uh, stroking out, pretty much. And um, it was a Friday night. A hospitalist was there. He never came and met me. He didn't care. He wrote on Richie's records that he was just um, basically a street bum, you know, no stable family relationships, that he was a probable... OD, yes, um, suicide, probable suicide. He used that word. Wow. Well, Sunday night when Richie died, I asked for an autopsy. And two days after that, I talked to the Jackson County Medical Examiner. He told me at length, very like Chatty Cathy was so warm, so friendly. And he told me everything medically, what had happened. And it was, in a word, whiplash trauma. But... I'm waiting. He says, two weeks, you'll get the paperwork. Two weeks go by, no paperwork. And now he won't get on the phone and talk to me. Six weeks out, that office releases a document that says suicide, overdose, Tylenol. So I said, yeah, that's what I said. Uh, What? Uh, Well, yeah, the way it kills you is it eats your liver up. And so you, you pretty much just, you know, you take it and you think, well, I didn't die, you know, and then a couple of days later, he started ten, turning yellow. Yeah. Um, but he, he had told me when we had talked, he had checked Richie's liver, and it was microscopically clear. I mean, you know, we went through every possibility. I, yeah. I told him how the hospital had done me. But now the coroner's office has bought into this, so I just, I went crazy. I, I stopped being a programmer. 
I started claiming to be somebody I wasn't to get into places to see things I wasn't supposed to see and talk to people I wasn't supposed to talk to. Just crazy. And it took me four years, but I found out what had happened, wrote a book about it, Justice for Truth. That book was released Christmas 2007. In the fall of 2009, it had landed in Bristow, Oklahoma Library, there by Tulsa. Retired Sheriff Paul Smith, I know how he got it, the librarian had read it, and he had been talking to her, so she recommended the book to him. He read it, asked her if she would get me down there, and she did. And when he started telling me his story, had I not been through what I had been through with the medical examiner's office, I would have still been one of the naive souls that thinks that people like that are professional and above the board and they're smart and educated and they just, you know, they they get the truth and they give you the truth. So I was jaded a little bit after my experience. So when Paul started telling me how he had been done in the Girl Scout murder case, I believed him. Um, It rang very true. And I told him that I would start looking into it and That is how I got into the Girl Scout murder case. Had you actually ever heard of the Girl Scout murders before you had spoke to him, or was this like a new case for you? I was 17 when it happened, and I lived in Comanche, Oklahoma, where I was born. I remember it happening. Of course, I was stunned, like everybody else. It was just such an unspeakable thing, and who would do that? And what stuck in my mind, I guess, long-term was the fact that every TV station, and back then there were three or four, that would be on the nightly news that they were hunting this fugitive named Jean Leroy Hart. And they had turned him almost into a phantom. Mm -hmm. As a teenage girl, I, I just started, I don't know, almost imagining him as a ghost. Yeah. And when they caught him... And then the jury said he wasn't guilty. I, I was confused, but here again, it didn't affect my life personally, the age I was at. You know, by the time he was acquitted, I was 19, like Hadley. And I just decided that um, you know, there was nothing I could do about it. They'd figure it out and never thought much more about it. I do want to say real quick, um, I did cover this, the Girl Scout case, It was like during my first season and I looked through the transcripts and everything and I kind of decided right then that like this is such a huge case with so much information that I'm either going to have to do one entire like season over this or I'm going to have to just hit the highlights and because there's just so much to go through just before you know even the new information that you got like there's just so much and so I was kind of like okay let's hit the highlights but also I wanted to kind of talk about that lore you know that was surrounding him like like he was some sort of spirit who just like vanishes into the night you know (laughs) boogeyman yes yeah And how that kind of affects people into how they discard or discredit evidence when there's this, like, huge superstition around it. And so that's kind of how, you know, I covered that case. But then, you know, I had used a a lot of resources, transcripts and, and books and stuff like that. But I wanted to say, like, so I have, I've read yours. And so far out of everything that I've ever read, every book I've ever read, it is the best, most detailed book I've ever read, like about the facts. Yes. And I I love that. Yes. Like there is like anything that you want to know, I highly suggest this book because I mean, there's things in here that I, you know, because I just had to kind of skim, you know, over records and stuff like that and I was like okay I didn't see that oh my gosh there's that oh my gosh what like there is so much to this case and I I definitely have a lot of respect because I know that must have taken so 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 long to research and and look through every single one of those documents you know so much much respect to you for that thank you and by the way I haven't properly thanked you two for having me on Uh, I appreciate this I 
have never done a podcast. I'll be honest with you. Oh, really? My maiden, wow. my maiden voyage. Awesome. Um, yeah. That's so funny. I, you know, was a little bit nervous before it started. You're making me feel very at home. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're honored to have but, you yeah. on the show, and it was but, very know, well written. Talking about thank you. Talking about all of the information. Paul Smith would say readily that he was never able to solve crimes by himself. Mm-hmm. It always took information from other people, what a cop would call an informant. <clears throat> I'm not a cop, so they're not informants to me, but there are a lot of people that know about this case that have never been asked. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have a badge. I'm just a Southern gal. I'm pretty disarming. I like people. I think it comes through. And when I talk to people, they seem to want to tell things that they know. Yeah. And it was so far from from a one-person effort. I would not have been able to write the book if if not for the cooperation of so many people, including Sheriff Weaver's son, Herb. You know, I still, I take my hat off to him because he could have gone along with the system the way it's been protected and that narrative all the information yes and yet he he was interested in the truth and he was willing to go wherever that led and i really respect that in him so i want to give a shout out to her had i not been able to get his dad's files which were actually the mays county files right um, Yeah. yeah it that really brought some things together and helped me to know a lot of things to ask and and check and so it it was just a group effort that's so awesome I think we're we're similar boil it down and we're not police you know we're just trying to ask people questions and get it out to the public and say hey obviously there's more information here and nobody's looking into it you know authority wise so you know the more people you can ask the more people they ask the more people are talking about it and you know maybe someday something might get done about it after the fox nation thing ran in october i was contacted through messenger and other methods by people that they had they, they wanted to talk but nobody was willing to listen yeah and i was the first one that said tell me what you got. I want to know, you know, what is it? And why do you think that? And who told you that? And that really propelled it forward as far as writing the book. I had intended to put the book out right as soon as the Fox Nation thing aired. I thought I was probably done. Well, then things started coming in. And as you see it kind of evolve, even, you know, I'm telling you, things are changing here. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more than what was done to Paul. And I started realizing that, I can challenge, I can publicly challenge these people that I don't think have what they claim to have. Yeah. And I'm still working on that. You know, it's it's not over. Yeah. Um, I'm still, I didn't write a book just to write a book. I wrote a book to try to get justice for these little babies. Yeah. And um, yeah, until that's done, I'm not done. So. Yeah. That's, that's how we feel here too. It's like you, you know, you, you cover a cold case and then everybody thinks, Oh, they're done with that. And nope, we're still sitting here going through the files and still meeting with people and And still still, meeting with people, you know, talking to the families and, and trying to get, you know, help them get resolution. Doing God's work. I call it. Yeah. I think, um, there, I have a couple questions, um, about, the case itself, things that, that you saw in those files that I didn't see, that I, you know, skimmed over or whatever. And I just kind of wanted to get your take on a couple of those things. Um, okay. Because there there is a lot of, um, again, let, let me just say, the book is called Shattered Justice, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. Obviously, you cover so much detail in it. But what do you think about that? Uh-huh. <laughs> So I have just a a couple of questions in there. Far away. (laughs) Okay. So you had said, and I can't remember where it might have even been on social media, um, but you had said that you thought that the thieves who stole stuff from the camp may not have actually been the same person persons as the murderers themselves. Yeah, that was my question too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have thought that for quite a long time. And it really came from my background as a computer programmer. I am a mathematician. You know, my degree is math. Mm -hmm. 
And what I did was go through those transcripts and I looked at every piece of evidence and where it was found. And then I looked at all the possibilities of who could have deposited it there and when and started honing in a timeline. It just, I don't know, it, it was, I guess, a God wink. I just, um, I believe it was the 10th of June. I was driving home from my substitute teaching job and almost stopped in the middle of the road like, oh my gosh, there's two different crimes here because the masking tape was what was my clue. It did not fit in the algorithm. I could not get it in that logic tree because the masking tape, you see that it, a couple of pieces of it had been torn off and used to tape plastic onto the lens of the flashlight right that masking tape was found the roll that was left over was found with a little piece of tape still stuck to or i mean plastic stuck to it right at cave number one okay so that in itself is is no big deal but what got me was you saw pieces of the tape and pieces of that green plastic little torn off pieces like someone had their hands covered with gloves or socks whatever and they were trying to doctor the flashlight and they kept getting it gummed up you know that's the picture I got so you have these little pieces of the plastic and tape lying with a crowbar and three beer bottles right They're close yeah to the fence and and I th that couldn't that just didn't fit an algorithm it's like how did that masking tape travel from Shroff's house it went over there and was used to doctor the flashlight. And then somehow it got back in pristine condition, clean, other than just a little piece of plastic stuck to it back at the cave. Mm -hmm. The first thing that told me was that, that Sheriff Paul had been wrong about Sheriff Weaver having planted everything because mm -mm, it, it, that was, I mean, you can see what I'm saying. Right. Unless Sheriff Weaver was the one who got the tape at Shroff's place went over and doctored the flashlight and then and then planted it in cave one. You know, he, he just, unless you believe he committed the crime, yeah. there's no way. So that was my first inkling that Paul had some thinking he needed to, you know. So I called him and I just said, Paul, I've got a problem with this masking tape. And I explained to him and he couldn't come up with an answer. So I went back to the drawing board and I threw out what he had kind of started me with being that Pete Weaver had planted everything against Gene because he hated him. And mm. I started looking at other possibilities. And around that same time, Faith Phillips, who did the Fox Nation thing, at the behest of the cold case unit out of Tulsa, had gone to the courthouse in Pryor to try to find out where the house was where one of Paul's suspects, Flea, had lived in 1977 because they felt like that it would be near his house where the car was put in the river. Mm -hmm. And that house is no longer standing. And so she was down at the courthouse, her being an attorney, she's good at records, of course. And that was kind of our first bombshell. Like, she's like, you won't believe who the squirrel hunters are directly related to. Like right. one of them is a brother-in-law flea. Right. That blew my mind. That changed everything because now I have people finding evidence, not only planting evidence, but I have people finding evidence that might have had a dog in the race. Right. And, you know, if you're pointing to Gene Hart, then you're pointing away from Flea Hilton. Mm -hmm. How convenient, right? That was what I was thinking about. Back to your question. That's a long answer to a short question. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking about. The reason that the killer and the thief were different was just the lack of blood. Um, you look at the, the eyeglasses and the case and the capo, and they were strewn. You know, they're just, they never quite made it out of Kiowa, and they're not bloody. Mm -hmm. And, and here's another thing. I think it came up on the Facebook page, and I, I've been at, you know, I was at church this morning. I've been busy. I haven't really responded to everything that's out there, but somebody had made the point, a good point, great point, that, well, the flashlight didn't have blood on it either. Mm -hmm, right. And their thing was, well, I think Gene would have wiped it off. And I'm thinking, okay, Gene's going to take the time to clean up the flashlight and leave it laying there. Why wouldn't Gene just take the flashlight if he's got time to clean it up? Right. You know, to me, that is not logical. 
in my logical mathematical brain, you just, I don't think that Gene would have left his own flashlight clean or not clean. I don't think he would have left it. I think he used it too much. And I do believe that was his flashlight. The tent, and, and I didn't bring this up in the book, but I'll just give you my two cents worth. There was a guy, I call him Wayne in the book. Right. He was a juvenile at the time, and his family didn't want him, uh, you know. He had spoken to Sheriff Weaver a lot. I found in the ice chest files that Pete Weaver had made quite a few notes, where it was obvious he was talking, asking this kid a lot of questions. Now, this kid was good buds with Millard and Thurman Buckskin, the younger, much, quite a bit younger brothers of Gene. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, okay, so Wayne had told Pete Weaver that one day when he was over to see the little brothers, that Gene had asked him to take him to Tahlequah. He was wanting to go fishing. He liked to fish, evidently. And so Wayne took him, and he said that where he let him out at, he saw a, a piece of canvas, just that same type, that looked like someone had used as a shelter down on the river. And so that was something that Gene would have known about. He would have seen, or, you know, maybe he even put that one up. I guess just sticks holding it up right. like a, a makeshift tent. I, and I've spoken to Gene's attorneys. I didn't take a lot of liberties with telling the stuff I know from there because um, I know Gary Pitchlin is writing his own book. and mm-hmm. um, But they seem to believe that Gene was fishing. I'll just leave it at that, mm-hmm. that weekend. They didn't know where necessarily, but, you know, he was fishing. Okay, so Gene was seen down on the river. I don't think that it was. it's a stretch of the imagination to believe that he went through the camp and, and got himself a piece of canvas to set himself up. Now, keep in mind, it's June. It's Oklahoma. It's hot. Mm-hmm. To set up a, a tent of sorts, a shelter down on the river where he was fishing that weekend. I can't prove that, but altogether fits with the algorithm. You know, there's there's no reason you couldn't say that. Right. And and then after that, the little mini cassette that I talk about that Paul recorded, mm-hmm. the Trammell men. You know, the youngest, the the son was married to Flea's sister. The older guy, very rational, down to earth, down and fellow. You know, just believable as he can be on that tape. And he was telling Paul that. That his wife, which would have been Janice's mother-in-law, had seen Gene come by on Sunday afternoon. He had stopped by the house on his way from the river fishing. She understood it. That would, if you looked at where their house was, it would have put him to where if he if he left there after he got a drink of water or cooled off, whatever. He went on, then he, that was right off ear, Bob. He would have gone on around to Cavalier Road, which leads right by Shroff's house ranch, right right by the camp Scott. So it it the timeline fit out you know out perfectly, and I just think that he probably got the stuff from Shroff's house, and he was known to take any kind of tape or cord whatever because he liked to bundle sticks for kindling when he cooked his fish or whatever, and he found they were a lot easier to carry bundled, and Larry Dry had had said that the guy he escaped with a couple of times said that Gene if he, if he saw he was a thief anyway but if he saw that stuff he was always interested so I think he took that stuff I think he was the one that went and doctored the flashlight I think when they left the camp to go to dinner all the girls to supper they called it mm-hmm. I think he hopped over that back gate and was having himself a nice little time getting purses from Quapaw and Kiowa and then the rain started, and, of course, we know the girls were coming back screaming. You can hear little girls screaming from a mile away. So something told him to skedaddle. And I think that he probably dropped those items. If it had just been the glasses in the case, I might have thought, well, he, he opened, tried them on, they didn't work. He just trashes them. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the capo was dropped as well tells me maybe he was in a hurry to get out of there and uh, dropped those things and didn't take the time to stop and get them and then went on home to mama's. Right. We do know that he had a record of, of, you know, burglary. I have a suspicion that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time because you see that, like, obviously he can't go to a store 
because he's on the run from the law. Obviously, he can't, you know, just go in and buy what he needs. He He's going to have to scavenge for things. Yes. And I think that he knew that that, that camp was a very good source of... Yeah, rich you know, source. Yeah, of getting items. If you look, even, I think, today or yesterday, somebody made a great point on the Facebook page that you have a guy, and, and we found out later, you know, he's got a really bad heart, but he, if he's working alone in there and he bludgeons those three little girls... There's a lot of blowback. Um, mm-hmm. Mike Wheat. Mike yes, Wheat. Mike there Wheat. you go. Photographer. Yeah, he was the photographer. Yeah, he took the yeah, crime scene photos. He was one photos. of the first first people I talked to when I started writing the book, and I have texts from him where he's talking about how he got his hush puppy soaked just going in that tent yes. to take pictures. Yeah. So it it was bloody, and we know that blowback is going to be all over you. And then, okay, you, you're supposed to believe that this one person has all this blowback on him, and then he is picking these bloodied bodies up and throwing them over his shoulder and carrying them for 150 yards, three trips. Yeah, right. And to me, he's going to be very, very messy. Mm-hmm. And so if he's working alone, how is everything so pristine that he touched every, everything else, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have a hard time buying that. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And, um, you did mention that when, when Paul, so he, he took over, he went in and he was looking for these files and they were gone. Right, And when he decided to like take it upon himself and go get the autopsy report, there is notes in there about the possibility of several different weapons being used. Now, mm-hmm. just in criminology alone, if it's one guy, why would you put down a weapon that you're using and is working because, you know, you've just at least killed yeah. one with it. Why would you switch weapons in the middle of an attack? It makes no yeah, sense. I, and and then switch up completely, you know, at, at the end there with the last girl. Like, it's a completely different style yes, of killing. You, that's a good word for it. Three different styles yes. of murders that you've got going on. I, I don't think there's any way at all that one killer or one person did everything that was done that night. I will say that I believe that Gene was the thief because of the other information I have of where he was traveling, what time, and just knowing his nature. He knew the camp. He would have heard when they all left to go to the Great Hall. Mm-hmm. Carla said everybody, everybody went. So we know all the way down at the Great Hall, that would have left Kiowa Road really quiet and empty. And um, I think he just was in there. He got the purses and, and saw the glasses and... And that capo, he had two brothers that played guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, don't know that Gene did. I haven't been able to find any family members that said that he ever was interested in playing guitar. So I think that, and, and Thurman, by the way, was, wasn't was interested in guitar. So I think if, if Gene wanted to help his brothers, I think music was a big thing in that house. Right. That he would have thought, hey, guitar capo, you know, mm-hmm. why not? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about about Dry when he when they went and questioned him. Do you think that the statements that he made, you know, about how Hart had functioned when they escaped together, do you think that he made those statements openly or do you think he was coerced in some way to say certain <laughs> things? My take on it is that Larry Dry wanted out of prison. Mhm. And Larry Dry wanted to offer them something to get himself out of prison. And as when they went and, you know, the OSBI question, I, I have the, um, the interview where they uh, questioned Gene's wife, ex-wife at the time, I guess. Um, they made suggestions that the questions were leading, I would say, where they're wanting to get the person they're talking to to believe that... We, we have the goods on this guy. Gene Hart, your ex-husband, Patricia, or your rapist, Kathy, or, you know, whoever. Right. Uh, this guy just brutally murdered three little baby 
girls, mm-hmm. pretty much. You don't unhear that, and, and you don't roll the tape back. Right. If you were traumatized in any way by this guy, and suddenly the, the, the OSBI is knocking on your door saying, hey, this guy murdered these three little girls. Mm-hmm. You know, what signs did you see? You always hear about the signs, right? Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, it's a foregone conclusion in your mind that, oh my gosh, you know, I was so lucky to have gotten away from this monster. Yeah. And, and so you start thinking out loud and, and uh, man, you know, how did I miss that in him? Well, maybe this meant something. And, and they really liked that line of, of investigation yeah, and, um, you know, getting people to say stuff that they'd never said before, ever. And um, I even talked, as I mentioned in the book, I, I spoke to Margie's twin sister who was right there. You know, they were twins. The, the girl told her everything. Well, maybe not everything, but <laughs> to a point, you know, right. there's some things you won't tell your own sister. But but she just said when, when she and I watched the Someone Cry for the Children documentary, mm-hmm. she was just, I don't remember that. I was right there in the room with her when they were filming that. And I don't remember her saying anything about a weird noise. And I said, had she ever mentioned a noise to you? Like early on when she was, you know, this was all fresh. No, no. And she had never remember her saying it at all. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you look at the way that tape or the, the, the video is cut and spliced and, and whatever, I don't put a lot of worth in it. Right. And, and I think they were trying so hard to tie those two cases because they wanted to bring in his prior record mm-hmm. to the new case and taint the jury with that, mm-hmm. that they just really pushed hard to get her to say, oh, yeah, he made a weird sound. But as I also tell in the book, I got with Carla Wilhite and I sent, I first sent six, I think, sounds mm-hmm. that were totally unidentified. Uh, she'd said a frog, a four, foghorn, a snore. So I had just sent her a mixture of sounds. Like, is anything even close? Does, does anything, you know, like how, how different could it be? Right. You know, how do I need to change it? And she started honing me in. And by the time we got done, it was a, a doe grunting. Ah, okay. Oh. Wow. And uh, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think that Gene Hart went around grunting like a deer. Right. I think had he done that, I think that those girls would have said that at the beginning. This, You know, this guy was so disgusting. You know, like he right. made this horrid sound. And and there was nothing like that. And they even asked her in that rape case, did he make any sounds? Did he say anything? She said, no, Kathy or uh, Margie had made a sound, you know, on my own or something. Did you hear any sounds, a frog, anything? And keep in mind, Carla had said frog all those years later. Right. And no, no, but she did hear fish jumping. While she's in the trunk of a rear-wheel drive car backing towards water, she knows she's getting close to water because she hears the fish jumping. Now, those are some good ears. Yeah, I read yeah. that. When I read that, I I'll was just, like... I'll just what? set that right there, Yeah. okay? Because I don't want to disrespect anybody that... You know, right, right, sure, but I but- do, I do think that that you're absolutely right because, um, you know, when you go into a trial like that, the that the previous record is sealed because you know you want an yeah. unbiased jury, and if you can find absolutely any way to open that up, you're going to get a conviction. You're you're just going to. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's why they went so hard on him for the robberies, three hundred five years for four burglaries. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is insane to me that it would be like 300 something years for that. But then for, you know, what he did to the two girls, it's 10 years and a slap on the hand. That just never made any sense to me. The crowbar that you previously mentioned, that was never entered into evidence, right? Never, never. No, and that was another fun moment when I called. Paul had told me, don't believe I mentioned this in the book, but Paul would always tell me, Jennifer... The OSBI will spend more time investigating you than they will investigating any information you bring them. Yeah. Well, I got to try that on um, when I I read about Arthur Linville saying about the crowbar, you know, and the, the bottles of beer by the plastic and all that. Right. And Sherry Farmer had told me that no uh, weapons, murder weapons had been 
ever entered into court. Right. So I looked him up, called him, and it was easy to find him because he has a business. I think they have locations in Oklahoma City and Tulsa both. And it came up. All you had to do was click on the link for the phone number. I clicked on the link. He answered the phone. And I just told him that um, I would like to know about the, the crowbar that he had found, you know, the beer bottles. And and he started just, you know, as loud as he could tapping on his, his computer. And he started, and what's your name? And uh, what's your motive for calling me? What's and, your motive? Wow. Yeah, he used that word. What's your motive for calling wow. me? I was so taken aback, and I said, I'm just interested in the Girl Scout case, and I've been looking over these um, pretrial transcripts where you have entered a crowbar in, and Mrs. Farmer told me that there were no, no weapons, and I was just wondering, you know, like, was that ever considered as a weapon? And, well, well what did I say? I don't, I don't just want your characterization of it. You, you tell me exactly what I said. And I, I said, well, um, I don't have the transcript in front of me right now, but well, he didn't want the essence of it. What did I say? And just very, very difficult. And eventually he said, well, um, that the crowbar would have been checked microscopically for biomaterial and that it obviously didn't have any or it would have been entered. I said, okay, well, you know, that would have been easy just to say that to start with. Yeah. Okay, so five minutes later, my phone rings. I answer it. He says, yeah, I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, how did you get my cell number? And I said, sir, I did a search on you, and your business came up, and I clicked on the link. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, I guess that stuff is out there now, isn't it? I said, oh, yeah, it is, and... So then he said, and what's this cherry tree thing? He had already investigated me. That was a club I'd started in 2014, uh-huh. you know, years earlier. Just letting me know that he knew about me. And I thought, what a jerk. And it hit me what Paul had said. They will spend more time investigating you yeah. than any information you bring them. That's interesting. And that's yeah. just who we're dealing with. The website, too, let me add this. He wanted to know, I told him where the trial transcripts were. And he wanted to know about that website. Well, which way does it lean? Does it say we got the right guy or what? And I said, well, you know, it doesn't wow. really seem to lean. Seems pretty objective. Yeah. Oh, he was, you talk about a sensitive soul. That's and what you deal with though. That website is um, one that, it, it's got a lot of great resources on it. Transcripts. Great resources. That's one that I used when I covered it, when I covered it. But like I said, there's so much there that you really have to dedicate like a like a long time, like probably years. Like you, you probably dedicated years to this, going through every single you know little piece of that. Like I said, there are things in there that that you know you you put in there, and and you're even still sitting here going, "Well, I didn't put this in, and I didn't put that." In. There's still so well, much in I mean, there. If a book's too thick, people are not going to read it. Yeah, so yeah. Have to stop somewhere. Unfortunately, but you know, it is now. I think my number one like go-to if somebody says okay well I want to know about the Girl Scout murders I'm definitely going to say okay well you need to read Shattered Justice because I have uh where is it I've got someone cry for the children and I've got Camp Scott I've got Ken um Camp Scott murders yeah and I've got Ken Freight's book and I've got another Camp Scott murder book and that one's just kind of like a timeline and but like if you don't want to have to take the time to sit down and go through those files on your own, you know, on, on the website or, or, you know, go through anything on your own and you just want to know the actual biggest facts of it. You did such a great job. Yes. Well, thank you. I, I told my husband when I was writing it, I said, um, I would like this to be almost like an encyclopedia of the Girl Scout case. Yes. Everything I had watched the Facebook page and, and just seen what people had questions about. Mm-hmm. And that kind of guided me, guided me on some of it, like the rape case, um, where people were saying, well, you know, that case was just like this case. And and if you tell me something, I'm the kind that I'll go check it out. Right. When Mike Reed tells me that the fingerprint inside the or on the flashlight lens was too smudged and it wasn't really even a fingerprint, 
well, what do you think I'm going to go to? Next thing I'm looking at is, well, what did the OSBI testify about that? You know, right. That's just me. I check, I double check everything. I'm a detailed person. I, I'm very much like Paul was in the fact that he wants to get it right. Yeah. He wants to know the way it really happened. And, you know, they hated Paul Smith. I, I have to give a shout out to Paul Smith because he went into outlaw country. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's known as yes. down there. Yeah. Locust Grove has had, I think, two their last two police chiefs hauled out of there because they stole guns or drugs or money or something from the evidence room. Wow. And it's where outlaws have hidden for decades, you know, um, longer than that. Yeah. And so um, Paul went in there being an honest, just the facts. He wanted stuff done right. Mm-hmm. They told him he had to give the prisoner 1,600 day calories or, you know, calories a day, whatever. Um, he was by the book to yeah. a fault. I mean, he just would not disobey the law to get past stuff. And, and that was really hard for him when he saw his fellow lawmen telling him it doesn't matter what you find doesn't matter what you bring us we're never going to charge anybody else yeah i mean that's why his bowel ruptured he, he was under such stress. a stress and such a strain just trying to figure out how to get around them how to you know get above the wall under the wall whatever and he was still living in that misery years later when i met him and when he knew that when faith phillips went in on the 24th of august and filmed him getting to tell that story. And he knew that the book was, well, it was supposed to have come out at the same time. He he finally was able to rest. And uh, it wasn't even quite a month later. It was one day short of a month later wow. that he went home. And, and he had lived by sheer will, pour an insure through a stomach feeding tube mm-hmm. to try to stay alive, to live long enough and there are people, I've heard them say, well, he was just trying to make a name for himself. I'm sorry, that they didn't know Paul Smith. They, they don't know Paul Smith if they believe that. And, you know, I get that too. Well, you're just writing a book to make money. And you're like, no, I, I would kind of like to put it out there so people will know what was done. Mm-hmm. I hope people will pressure everybody they know that's in any place of power, any position that can get something done. I'm working on some stuff myself, you know, um, that's not yet for publishment, but you know, it's not over. This is not over. I put it out there to try to get us some help and some public support and uh, to publicly challenge them, put up or shut up. You know, you say that everything points to Gene Hart, show me. I'm from Missouri now, show me. I'm in the show me state. And to me, it's like Mike Reed could settle it once and for all, if he wants all the conspiracy theorists to go away, like I'm one of, I guess, he thinks, um, yeah, produce the lab reports. All we need is the lab reports and a list of comparisons. Right, right. And he will not produce those. He wouldn't produce them for the Hulu producer, and I know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mike. <laughs> um, he won't produce them for the families. They won't produce them for anybody. Wow. Why? You know, if they want to put this thing to rest and get people like me to go away, play your ace. Mm-hmm. Show us. Yeah. Funny, they, they won't do that. That's why I said I've, I've still got a couple tricks up my sleeve, so we'll see. And this is just my opinion. But I really feel like that Denise, from what Buddy Bristol told Paul, I think that the, Denise was scared. She was fretting. She hadn't been able to go to sleep. I think when those guys started coming in the back, keep in mind her bunk was at the front. Mm-hmm. And I think she bolted out the front of the tent. And I think she managed to cry mama twice. I can't prove that, but I know that later on. Yeah, there were witnesses that said that they heard that. I remember that. And she would, it would have been mama because she was, you know, her mama was the only one she had at home. And, um, I don't doubt that that was her. I also think, and this here again is my opinion, I want to make that clear, mm-hmm, sure. but I think that there was, one of the killers was known to wear the ace bandage with the towel to sop the sweat, and I think when Denise was awake and took off that it became almost like a sick, twisted, we'll show you. 
and we'll just have some fun with you. And I have even wondered that had the alarm clock not gone off, if Denise would have been taken alive, the other bodies would have been taken and put in the river with the car. Uh, this is kind of from what Buddy was telling Paul. Um, the, the idea Paul had was that they were going to be put in the river. Now, Paul didn't ever tell me any strong opinion on whether he thought Denise was going to be taken alive. But the fact that her body was still warm, I don't think that she was dead yet when the alarm clock went off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they were going to take her alive. And Lord knows how long they would have kept her and what they would have done to her. And the poor little baby, probably it was the mercy of God that the alarm clock went off and they just finished her off right there. Mm -hmm. And that's an awful thing to say, but... I can't imagine being with those monsters any longer than she was with them. There are some answers in there about, um, you You talk a little bit about the the semen, and you, you mm-hmm. go into detail about, you know, what did and didn't happen with that. Um, yes. And you also talk about the, the biggest ender portion that comes in with Paul is that he absolutely had other suspects. And he was actually oh, yeah. investigating those suspects alongside, you know, this heart investigation. Mm-hmm. And it would, it, his investigation was obviously leading away from heart and to these three slash four other men. Yes. And, um, and you go into, you know, detail about, you know, why he thought that they were suspects and, and why they could possibly look better than heart mm-hmm. did for, you know, for this horrific crime um Mm -hmm. and and i think that it's it's very important that when you say you know heart didn't do it that you have reasons why you think that not Mm -hmm. just you know well i just don't feel like he did it but that you legitimately say well look at these guys though and that's exactly what you do in this book you say okay but but here's legitimate evidence that he collected and here's the legitimate witnesses that he talked to and, yes. you know, take a look at these guys. So it, it wasn't just Hart. It wasn't, you know, just him that was a suspect. There were plenty of other suspects, you know, and, and of course, you know, in other books, there's other suspects mentioned, but no one had ever mentioned these men that, that Paul mentioned before. The gentleman Paul holds that is pretty well known now mm-hmm. that was on the Golden State Killer. He made a, a statement about Jean Hart that I thought, man, that is a great point. Here Jean was, he had been free for four years. Jean knew that if he gets caught, he's he's never going to see daylight again. Mm-hmm. So he is trying to lay low, not stir up any more trouble than, than here again he'd do some thieving, but uh, a lot of fishing, that kind of thing. But that was necessity. Yeah. Um, but like Paul Hulse said, here, here's a guy trying to, to stay out of the limelight, and then he's going to go in here and do something so heinous that you're going to spend $2 million bringing the FBI, the OSBI. You know, they're going to catch him. I mean, he's flat just going to... It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit his M.O. You know, of course, I'm not saying he didn't have anything to do with it. I'm not saying one way or the other. But I love how you lay it out in your book and you just kind of let people make their own determination. Like, you make them think about it. But there was a lot, and you talk about this in the book, there was a lot of contrary evidence to that. Um, And I think one of the things that I see the most is the shoe prints... And like you said, the blood, because there was a lot of blood and there was shoe print impressions and stuff like that in multiple different kinds, you know, two different kinds. Um, And then at one point, you know, during the technician's break, someone goes in there and tries to clean it up. That's where the smear comes from. It wasn't smeared initially, but, and, and, and a lot of people think, oh, well, it was smeared, you know, when they got in there initially and, and, but it wasn't. That happened during a break. And see, that's another thing that that bothers me when I go and talk to the current sheriff. I guess I feel like he's the one with the badge. He should know more about this case than I do. And yet he sat there October 22nd of 2021 and told me, well, the smears were from the bags being dragged 
Now, I know he has told, I believe it was on Hulu, that we know that they were carried away. And it's just almost like he doesn't even have an idea of what happened. At least I think I have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but yet he won't listen to anybody. He won't. He just stonewalls you. He'll, he'll listen to you and then tell you you've let your imagination run crazy with you. And it doesn't really matter. It's almost like they told Paul doesn't matter what you bring us. Nobody else is ever going to be arrested. I can sit here right now today and I will bet you half my teeth and my right arm. Mike Reed will never arrest anybody for the Girl Scout murders. There is a joke going around in the law enforcement community that you could walk in there and confess today and he'd kick you out. Wow. See, Hi, Mike. It um, doesn't wow. even make sense that, that he would say they were drug out because then that would cause a lot more noises and a lot more attention to be drawn so the fact that they carried them out would makes complete more sense yeah and so i mean that just to me and and that's going to leave the floor intact well like like they found it it. would yeah and that's not even me just saying that as just i see it and i'm reading it like i'm saying that as as like a victim expert and he always comes back to well that's a fantastic story but the DNA all points to heart. That's why in the book with the challenge, if if it trumps everything else, right. by golly, let's get it out here and look at it. Yeah. But yet he won't. Now, why is that? Yeah. They're afraid that they won't get the credit, or I don't, I don't know what it is. Right. That they're not willing. But I will tell you that Mike Reed never asked to see the letter that I was mailed. He never asked me who mailed it to me. Nothing. I mean, you know, that person spent a lot of time with the letter writer and had a lot more detail. He wasn't interested right. because the DNA only points to genes. So, you know, I'm sitting over here saying, well, that must be some mighty powerful DNA evidence. Why don't we whoop it out here and look at it? No way. He won't show it to anybody. So there's a problem there. And the letter, uh, just by the way, for the listeners, the letter that we're referencing is, um, you, you mention it, you, you have a whole section about it in your book, but this was something that was exclusive information for you. Yes. yes. And it had a lot of implications in it from someone who really wouldn't have any sort of motive to implicate someone because this person was literally on their deathbed when they wrote it. It was mm-hmm. kind of a, yeah. uh, a last will and testament almost. Like, this is yes. what I have to say about it. And now that I'm gone, you know, I'm not going to have to face, you know, anything. So there's yeah. no reason why I shouldn't tell, you know, my side of it. Yeah, his, his exact words were, uh, as soon as I'm gone, mail this to that lady. Mm-hmm. That's who I was to him, that lady. <laughs> And this was the lady that had come around asking questions in 2010, 11, 10 years earlier. Right. And um, he wanted to talk to me then, but was afraid to. Yeah, before he left this world, he wanted that lady to know what he knew. Yeah. Had that friend of his not mailed the letter, we wouldn't be talking. Because that was the... um, Catalyst. It it catapulted me. Yeah. Yeah, it connected the dots. It, It was really what made it all make sense and how it all tied together and you get the twist that no one sees coming yeah well and the fact that it, it lines up with what paul had been saying this this whole time yes um and i i did want to ask you as well so i know that you know us personally we know how hard it is covering a open investigation yes um we run into things all the time that you know oh well you know we can't say that we can't put that in there's things that you know you have to kind of keep um you know close to you because it is open and you do want it to you know you want somebody to come in and investigate it and be able to do it thoroughly you don't want to impede anything but you also need to you know get your this the information that's necessary across for someone to come in and say there's more to this you know and so I was wondering if there was ever a point where 
you just were, were like, oh, I can't put anything in here. I can't put this in there. I can't put, I can't put that in there. There's no point in writing this book because I can't put any of this in here. And then of course, you know, you find ways to kind of get around things, name change, changes and, and stuff like that. But was there ever a point like that for you? I spoke to a couple of good attorneys. As long as you're telling the truth, you know, it's like at this point, I don't want to be sued, but if I am sued, I will have subpoena power. If you've read my book, Justice for Truth, and, and I know you girls haven't, but anybody out there that has read Justice for Truth. I'm definitely going to get I'm it. I'm going to, yes. Yeah. I learned then that subpoena power is so neat to have. You can start making them give up records. You can, I mean, the discovery process is a beautiful thing. And it's almost like, bring it on. You know, if, if you want to sue me for what I've said, prove me wrong. That's actually a um, really interesting point that I've never is. thought about before. Yeah, I'm not afraid of a lawsuit. I, I like the discovery process. That that was what where I found the truth in my son's case. It was when I got subpoena power. I was dead in the water till then. So, yeah, if, if they want to sue me, um, come loaded because I will. Yeah. You know? That's all I'm doing. I've never thought of that before, but yeah, in discovery, like they'll have to to give you give their... you information that you know you've been wanting yes. this whole time. So <laughs> you that's why I say it's me. It's a win-win. You know, <laughs> that's very so, interesting. I'll take the the hit for whatever they want to bring my way, but I want the truth to be known. I want these little girls to have justice, and I want the parents to have the truth. I trust God. He's the one in control of my life. So, uh, yeah, I don't worry about it. I, I named names after I talked to legal counsel. I named names, and I learned how to say what I wanted to say without getting in trouble. But, yeah, I'm here again. I, I'll take a discovery process yeah. if they want to get into one. Absolutely. That's amazing that you've advocated for these little girls and that you've you've really put – it's bright. I mean, just so – just so strong and so brave to say bring it on and I I really well I just I'm it's just honored to to talk to you and know that there's somebody out there that's really pushing for this case well and just so you know I don't you know I don't care after all these these years we're gonna do this yeah you know and that's that's so important we need more we need more people it's like the saying somebody has to have the guts to say it yeah absolutely and in this case I guess I drew the short straw but (laughs) Was there any other avenues that you tried before you decided to write a book about this that maybe you didn't get anywhere? Or did you always think, well, I'm just going to put this in a book? 2009, when Paul had me brought to the library, as I said, after he read my, how crazy I was willing to get, you know, get to the bottom of something. He thought, hey, this old gal might be somebody I can use. So yeah. um, I worked on it about two years and, you know, I talk about in the book um, some of the things that I did to try. And, Lord, it was like everybody was dead or they were associated with the OSBI. You know, ju- the doors were just shut. Right. And, I mean, I gave it everything that I could think of. And Paul wanted a book written then. That was that was what he'd been bugging the librarian about. He thought if his story was told to enough people, something might get done about it. Right. Well, for some reason, I just never felt it in me to write. I just felt like I had so little to to really give the public. I don't I don't know how to describe it. Sometimes you just have intuition about things, mm-hmm. and that's the only way I can describe it. It just didn't seem like the right time. And um, then when, when the letter came in the mail and I started putting the things together, and of course Faith had contacted Paul with her school kids, and it was almost like God was saying, now, now. And, and I knew early on that I'm going to be writing a book now. Yeah. Paul, bless his heart, he would say, well, now, Jennifer, you may have to pad my story. I don't know that there's enough about me to write. And I, I mean, you've read Paul's story, yeah, I'm thinking. Was, yeah, 97 years, there's plenty. But he was so non-assuming. I mean, he was just that way. He never saw himself as anything special. He just wanted those little girls to have justice. He wanted the truth to come out. And, and that was it for him. 
you know, he, he never wanted a name for himself or anything like that. He only wanted his story about the Girl Scouts to be told to get help. And I just felt like that, that the interesting life he had, that people needed to know the man. Right. And like I knew, well, no, not like I knew him because you could never know him quite like I knew him. Um, but I tried to take you there vicariously mm-hmm. to help you to feel Paul. Feel his heart, feel his tenacity. He was an amazing man. One of the most amazing people. It definitely yeah. comes across. Well, we yeah. appreciate you being on with yes, us. Absolutely. So much. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I really appreciate what you do. As I said, you're doing God's work. Um, there are a lot of people in the world hurting that I was one of them when I was going through my son's case so for four years. Um, yeah. But you know what? If you were to read that book, it turned into such a spiritual experience for me. And I knew then, and I wrote it in that book, that this was what I was going to be doing. I didn't know what that meant, but now I do. It led me straight to Lori and Denise and Michelle. And, um, you know, that's my faith. Uh, I, I just, I believe there's a higher power at work here. And that's why I really believe this is going to be solved. It's time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raven's Reviews. Catch more next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?